Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 12 Quite a sentimental chapter. We must now travel back to London to inquire what has become of Miss Amelia. We don't care a fig for her, writes some unknown correspondent. She is insipid. A kind remark, which in truth is complimentary to the young lady. Has the beloved reader never heard similar remarks by female friends, who always wonder what you can see in Miss Smith, or what could induce Major Jones to propose for that silly, simpering Miss Thompson, who has nothing but her wax doll face to recommend her? These dear moralists hint wisely that the accomplishments of the mind, a lady-like knowledge of botany and geology, and the power of rattling out sonatas and so forth, are far more valuable than those fugitive charms which a few years will tarnish. It is quite edifying to hear women speculate upon the worthlessness of beauty." But though virtue is a much finer thing, and though, very likely, the heroic female character which ladies admire is a more glorious object than the fresh, artless, tender little domestic goddess, yet men do admire the latter more. Though I have been repeatedly told that Miss Brown is an insignificant shit, yet I see all the young fellows battling to dance with her. And so I think that to be despised by her sex is a very great compliment to a woman. The young ladies in Amelia's society did this for her very satisfactorily. The Mrs. Osborne, George's sisters, and the Mrs. Dobbins agreed about nothing so well as her very trifling merits, and their wonder that their brothers could find any charms in her. We are kind to her said the Mrs. Osborne, a pair of fine, black-browed young ladies who had had the best governesses and milliners. They treated Amelia with such extreme kindness and condescension and patronized her so insufferably that the poor little thing was perfectly dumb and stupid in their presence. She tried to like them and passed the most dreary mornings with them. She drove out in their great family coach. They took her to concerts and to St. Paul's to see the charity children. Their house was comfortable, their society solemn and genteel, their self-respect prodigious. All their habits were pompous and orderly, and all their amusements intolerably dull and decorous. After every visit, Miss Osborne and Miss Maria Osborne and Miss Wirt, the governess, asked each other with increased wonder, what could George find in that creature? How is this? some carping reader exclaims. How is it that Amelia, who had so many loving friends at school, comes out into the world and is spurned by her sex? My dear sir, there were no men at Miss Pinkerton's establishment except the old dancing master. 
When George, their handsome brother, ran off directly after breakfast and dined away from home half a dozen times a week, his neglected sisters felt a little vexed. When young Bullock, of Bullock and Company, bankers, who had been making up to Miss Mariah Asborne the last two seasons, asked Amelia to dance, could you expect Mariah to be pleased? And yet she said she was. Oh, I'm so delighted you like dear Amelia, she said quite eagerly to Mr. Bullock. She's engaged to my brother George. There is not much in her, but we're all so fond of her. Dear girl, who can calculate the depth of affection expressed in that enthusiastic so? Miss Wirt and these two affectionate young women so frequently reminded George Osborne of the great sacrifice he was making in throwing himself away upon Amelia that he really thought he was one of the most deserving characters in the British Army. Although he dined out six days a week, when his sisters believed him to be with Amelia, he was not always with her. On several occasions, when Captain Dobbin called for his friend, Miss Osborne, who was very attentive to the captain, would laughingly point across the square and say, "'Oh, you must go to the Sedleys for George. We never see him.' at which the captain would laugh in a rather constrained manner and turn the conversation to some other topic. "'What an innocent it is!' Miss Mariah would then say to Miss Jane upon his departure. "'Did you see how he blushed at the mention of poor George on duty?' "'It's a pity Frederick Bullock hasn't some of his modesty, Mariah,' replied the elder sister with a toss of her head. "'The fact is,' When Captain Dobbin blushed and looked so awkward, it was because he had already called at Mr. Sedley's house, and George wasn't there, only poor little Amelia, with rather a sad and wistful face, who asked, had Captain Dobbin seen Mr. Osborne that day? Captain Dobbin had not. He was with his sister, most likely, the captain said. So he crossed the square to fetch the truant, and Amelia waited and waited, but George never came. Poor little tender heart. So it goes on hoping and trusting. You see, it is not much of a life to describe. There is not much incident in it. Only one feeling all day. When will he come? I believe George was playing billiards with Captain Cannon when Amelia was asking Captain Dobbin about him, for George was a sociable fellow, and excellent in games of skill. Once, after three days of absence, Miss Amelia put on her bonnet and actually invaded the Osborne house. "'What? Leave our brother to come to us?' said the young ladies. "'Have you had a quarrel, Amelia?' "'No, indeed.' "'Who could quarrel with him?' said she, with her eyes filled with tears. "'She only came over to see her dear friends. "'They had not met for so long. "'And this day she was so perfectly stupid and awkward "'that the Mrs. Osborne wondered more than ever "'what George could see in her. "'How was she to bear the timid little heart "'for the inspection of those bold young ladies?' The Mrs. Osborne were excellent critics of a cashmere shawl or a pink satin slip, but there are things of a finer texture than satin, 
and there are sweet, modest little souls blooming tenderly in quiet, shady places. The life of a good young girl who is still in the paternal nest can't have many of those thrilling incidents which happen to the heroine of a romance. While Becky Sharp was on the wing in the country, hopping on all sorts of twigs amid a multiplicity of traps and pecking up her food quite successfully, Amelia lay snug in her nest at Russell Square, that cheery, comfortable home in which she was affectionately sheltered. Mamma had her morning duties, and her daily drive, and the delightful rounds of visits and shopping which is the profession of the rich London lady. Papa conducted his mysterious operations in the city, a stirring place in those days when war was raging all over Europe. Old Sedley once or twice came home with a very grave face, and no wonder, when news of battles and retreats was agitating all the stock markets. Meanwhile, matters went on in Russell Square just the same. The retreat from Leipzig made no difference to the meals in the servants' hall. The Allies poured into France, and the dinner bell rang at five o'clock just as usual. I don't think poor Amelia was interested in the war until Napoleon abdicated, when she clapped her hands and prayed, oh, how gratefully, and flung herself into George Osborne's arms to everyone's astonishment. Peace was declared. Napoleon was overthrown, and Lieutenant Osborne's regiment would not need to fight. That was how Amelia reasoned. The fate of Europe was Lieutenant George Osborne to her. He was her Europe, and her emperor, her sun, her moon. We have talked of poverty as Becky Sharp's dismal instructor. Now, Love was Miss Amelia Sedley's tutor, and it was amazing what progress our young lady made under that teacher. In the course of eighteen months, what a deal of secrets Amelia learned, which Miss Wirt and the young ladies over the way had no knowledge of. How should they? Miss Maria Osborne, it is true, was attached to Mr. Frederick Bullock, but hers was a most respectable attachment and she would have taken the gouty old Bullock senior if he had not been married. Her mind was fixed, as a well-bred young lady should be, upon a house in Park Lane, a country home at Wimbledon, a handsome carriage, and a fourth of the annual profits of Hulker and Bullock. This was not the sort of love that finished Amelia's education, and over the year turned a good young girl into a good young woman. She loved George Osborne with all her heart. She thought about him the first moment on waking, and his was the last name mentioned in her prayers. She never had seen a man so beautiful or so clever, such a figure on horseback, such a dancer, such a hero in general. He was good enough to be a fairy prince, and, oh, what magnanimity to stoop to such a humble Cinderella! This blind devotion is in the nature of some women. Some are made to scheme, and some to love. Meanwhile, 
Miss Amelia neglected her twelve dear friends at Chiswick most cruelly, although she had little Laura Martin for the holidays, and made a confidant of her, and promised that Laura should come and live with her when she was married, and gave Laura a great deal of information about love, which must have been singularly useful to that little person. Alas, I fear poor Emmy had not a well-regulated mind. What were her parents doing to help her? Old Sedley did not seem to notice matters. He was graver of late, and his city affairs absorbed him. Mrs. Sedley was of an easy nature. Mr. Joss was away at Cheltenham. Amelia had the house to herself. Ah, too much to herself sometimes. Not that she ever doubted George, for, to be sure, he must be at the horse guards, and he must see his friends and sisters when he is in town, and when he is with the regiment he is too tired to write long letters. But if Osborne's letters were short and soldier-like, Miss Sedley, in return, not only filled large sheets of paper, but crossed and underlined her writing, and copied whole pages out of poetry books. She wasn't a heroine. Her letters were full of repetition. She wrote rather doubtful grammar sometimes, and in her verses took all sorts of liberties with the meter. But if you are not allowed to touch the heart in spite of poor syntax, may all poetry go to the deuce, and every schoolmaster perish miserably. Chapter 13 Sentimental and Otherwise I fear that so many notes followed Lieutenant Osborne about the country that he became almost ashamed of the jokes of his mess-room companions about them and ordered his servant to deliver them to his private room. He was seen lighting his cigar with one to the horror of Captain Dobbin, who, it is my belief, would have given a banknote for it. For some time, George strove to keep the liaison a secret. There was a woman in the case, he admitted. "'And not the first, either,' said Ensign Spoony to Ensign Stubble. "'That Osborne's a devil of a fellow. "'There was a judge's daughter at Demerara who went almost mad about him. "'Then there was that beautiful girl at St. Vincent's. "'And uh, since he's been home, they say he's a regular Don Giovanni, by Jove.' "'Stubble and Spoony thought that to be a regular Don Giovanni "'was one of the finest qualities a man could possess.' and Osborne's reputation was prodigious among the young men of the regiment. He was famous in field sports, free with his money, and his coats were better made than any. He was adored by the men. He could drink more than any officer of the mess and box, and was the best batter and bowler of the regimental cricket club. He rode his own horse, Grease Lightning, and won the Garrison Cup at Quebec races. Well, Stubble and Spoony and the rest indulged in romantic conjectures about this female correspondent of Osborne's, saying that it was a duchess who was in love with him, or a general's daughter, or some other victim of a passion delightfully exciting and disgraceful. And the real state of the case would never have been known in the regiment but for Captain Dobbin's indiscretion. 
the captain, who was eating his breakfast one day in the mess-room, while the two ensigns and the surgeon were speculating upon Osborne's intrigue, Stubble holding out that the lady was the duchess, and Cackle vowing she was an opera singer of the worst reputation. At this, Dobbin couldn't help blurting out, "'You're talking nonsense. Osborne is not going to run off with a duchess or an opera singer. Miss Sedley is one of the most charming young women that ever lived.' He's been engaged to her ever so long, and the man who calls her names had better not do so in my hearing. And turning exceedingly red, Dobbin almost choked himself with a cup of tea. The story was over the regiment in half an hour, and Osborne was furious with Dobbin for betraying his secret. Who the deuce asked you to talk about my affairs? Why the devil is all the regiment to know that I am going to be married? "'What right have you to meddle in my business, Dobbin?' "'It seems to me,' Captain Dobbin began. "'Seems be hanged, Dobbin,' said George. "'I am under obligations to you, I know. "'But I won't be sermonized by you because you're five years my senior. "'I'm hanged if I'll stand your airs of superiority. "'I should like to know in what I'm your inferior.' "'Are you engaged?' Captain Dobbin asked. "'What the devil's that to you or anyone here?' "'Are you ashamed of it?' "'What right have you to ask me that question, sir?' "'Good God! You don't mean to say you want to break off?' asked Dobbin, starting up. "'In other words, you ask me if I'm a man of honour? said Osborne fiercely. "'Is that what you mean? You've adopted such a tone to me lately that I'm damned if I'll bear it any more.' "'Why? I've told you that you were neglecting a sweet girl, George.' "'I've told you that when you go to town, you ought to go to her, "'and not to the gambling-houses about St. James. "'You want your money back, I suppose,' said George, with a sneer. "'Of course I do. I always did, didn't I?' says Dobbin. "'You speak like a generous fellow.' "'No, hang it, William. I beg your pardon,' George interrupted with remorse. "'You have been my friend in a hundred ways.' "'Heaven knows. You've got me out of a score of scrapes. "'When Crawley of the Guards won that money off me, I should have been done but for you. "'But you shouldn't always be preaching at me. "'I am very fond of Amelia. I adore her and that sort of thing. "'Don't look angry. I know she's faultless. "'But hang it. We are just back from the West Indies.' I must have a little fling, and when I'm married I'll reform upon my honour, Dob. Oh, don't be angry, and I'll, I'll give you a hundred next month, when I, when I know my father will pay me something handsome, and I'll ask for leave and, and go to town and see Amelia tomorrow. Will that satisfy you? It is impossible to be long angry with you, George, said the captain, and as for the money, old boy, I know you'd share your last shilling with me. That I would, by Jove, Dobbin, George said generously, though he never had any money to spare. Only I wish you had sown those wild oats of yours, George. If you could have seen poor little Miss Emmy's face when she asked me about you the other day, you would have pitched those billiard balls to the deuce. Go and comfort her, you rascal. "'Go and write her a long letter. "'Do do something to make her happy. "'A very little will. Oh, "'I believe she's damned fond of me. 
the lieutenant said with a self-satisfied air, and went off to join some fellows in the mess-room. Amelia, meanwhile, was looking at the moon and thinking of her hero. Perhaps he is visiting the sentries, thought she. Perhaps he is bivouacking or attending the bed of a wounded comrade or studying the art of war up in his own desolate chamber. All things considered, I think it was as well the poor little angel could not hear the songs those young fellows were roaring over the whiskey punch. The next day, young Osborne, to show Dobbin that he was as good as his word, prepared to go to town. I should have liked to give her a little present, Osborne said, only I, <laughs> I'm quite out of cash. So, Dobbin loaned Mr. Osborne a few pounds, which he took after a faint scruple. And I dare say he would have bought something very handsome for Amelia, only getting off the coach in Fleet Street, he was attracted by a handsome shirt pin in a jeweler's window, which he could not resist, and having paid for that, had very little money left. Never mind. You may be sure it was not his presence Amelia wanted. When he came to Russell Square, her face lit up as if he had been sunshine. The fears, tears, and sleepless fancies were forgotten. Samuel saw the little girl start and flush and jump up from her watching place in the window as he announced Lieutenant Osborne, and she went fluttering to Osborne's heart as if it was the only natural home for her to nestle in. George kissed her kindly on her forehead, and was very gracious and good, and she thought his diamond shirt-pin, which he had not known him to wear before, the prettiest ornament ever seen. The observant reader may possibly come to certain conclusions regarding the character of Mr. Osborne. Some cynical Frenchman has said that in matters of love there is the one who loves and the other who condescends to be loved. Perhaps the love is occasionally on the man's side, perhaps on the lady's. But this is certain, that Amelia believed her lover to be one of the most gallant and brilliant men in the empire, and Lieutenant Osborne thought so too. He was a little wild, but don't girls like a rake better than a milksop? He would soon have sown his wild oats, and would quit the army now that peace was proclaimed and Napoleon locked up at Elba. The chance of promotion and valor was over, and his allowance, with Amelia's settlement, would enable them to take a snug house in the country, in a good sporting neighborhood, and he would hunt a little and farm a little, and they would be very happy. As for remaining in the army as a married man, that was impossible. Fancy Mrs. George Osborne in the East or West Indies, with a society of officers and patronized by Mrs. Major O'Dowd. Amelia died with laughing at Osborne's stories about Mrs. Major O'Dowd. He loved her much too fondly to subject her to that horrid, vulgar woman and the rough treatment of a soldier's life. His dear little girl should take her rightful place in society. You may be sure she agreed to all these proposals, as she would to any that he made. Thus, building castles in the air, which Amelia adorned with flower gardens, rustic walks, Sunday schools, and the like, while George imagined the stables, the kennels, and the cellar, this young pair passed away a couple of hours very pleasantly, 
When he took her to his sister's while he attended to business, he left her talking and prattling in a way that astonished those ladies, who thought that George might, after all, make something of her. He then went off to transact his business. He ate ices at a pastry cook shop in Charing Cross, tried a new coat in Pell Mell, dropped in at the old slaughters and played eleven games at billiard with Captain Cannon, of which he won eight, and returned to Russell Square half an hour late for dinner, but in a very good humor. Not so old Mr. Osborne. When that gentleman came from the city and was welcomed in the drawing-room by his daughters and Miss Wirt, they saw at once by his solemn face and by his scowl and twitching black eyebrows that he was disturbed and uneasy. When Amelia stepped timidly forward to salute him, he gave a surly grunt of recognition and looked round gloomily at his eldest daughter, with a glance that meant, "'Why the devil is she here?' "'George is in town, papa,' said Miss Osborne and we'll be back to dinner. I won't have the dinner kept waiting for him. This worthy man lapsed into his chair, in a silence only interrupted by the alarmed ticking of the great French clock. When it told five, in a heavy cathedral tone, Mr. Osborne pulled the bell at his right hand violently, and the butler rushed up. Dinner! roared Mr. Osborne. Mr. George hasn't come in, sir. "'Damn, Mr. George, sir! Am I master of the house? Dinner!' Amelia trembled. Glances passed between the other three ladies. The bell in the lower regions began ringing in the announcement of the meal. Without waiting, the head of the family strode downstairs, scowling over his shoulder at the four females. "'What's the matter?' asked one of the other, as they rose and tripped gingerly behind him. "'I suppose the funds are falling,' whispered Miss Wirt. And so this hushed and trembling female company followed their dark leader and took their places at the table in silence. He growled out a blessing which sounded as gruff as a curse. The great silver dish covers were removed. "'Soup,' said Mr. Osborne, and having helped Amelia and the rest, did not speak for a little. "'Take Miss Sedley's plate away,' he said at last. "'She can't eat the soup. No more can I. It's beastly. Take it away, Hicks. And tomorrow turn the cook out of the house, Jane.' Mr. Osborne made a few savage remarks about the fish, and then lapsed into silence, swallowing glasses of wine and looking more and more terrible, till a brisk knock at the door told of George's arrival, when everybody began to rally.' "'General Dagolet had kept him waiting at the horse guards. "'Oh, never mind the superfish. Give him anything. "'He didn't care what. "'Oh, capital mutton!' <laughs> "'His good humour contrasted with his father's severity, "'and he rattled on during dinner to the delight of all, "'and of one especially. "'Eventually the ladies arose and departed to the drawing-room. "'Amelia hoped George would soon join them there.' She began playing some of his favorite waltzes at the grand piano, but this did not bring him. The waltzes grew fainter and fainter. The performer left the piano, and though her three friends performed some of the loudest and most brilliant new pieces of their repertoire, she did not hear, but sat thinking and boding evil. 
Old Osborne's scowl had never before looked so deadly to her. His eyes had followed her out of the room as if she was guilty of something. Oh, these women. They nurse their forebodings and make darlings of their ugliest thoughts. His father's gloom had also made George Osborne anxious. How was he to extract that money he needed from the governor? He began praising his father's wine. That was generally a successful means of cajoling the old gentleman. We never got such Madeira in the West Indies, sir, as yours. Colonel Heavychop took off three bottles of that you sent me down the other day. Did he? said the old gentleman. It is devilish fine wine. And he looked more good-humoured. Ring the bell for the claret, George, and we'll see if that's as good as the Madeira. And while we are drinking it, I'll talk to you about a matter of importance. Amelia heard the bell ringing as she sat nervously upstairs. She thought somehow it was a mysterious and presentimental bell. What I want to know, George, the old gentleman said, is uh, how are you and... Uh, that little thing upstairs carrying on. I think, sir, it is not hard to see, George said with a self-satisfied grin. Pretty clear, sir. Oh, what capital wine. What do you mean, pretty clear, sir? Why, hang it, sir, I'm a modest man, but I do own that she's devilish fond of me. And you, yourself? Why, <laughs> sir, didn't you order me to marry her? And ain't I a good boy? "'A pretty boy, indeed. "'I've heard of your doing, sir, with Lord Tarquin, "'Captain Crowley of the Guards, and that set. "'Have a care, sir. Have a care.' "'George was alarmed when he heard these names, "'fearing his father might have been informed "'of certain transactions at play. "'But the old man went on serenely. "'Well, well, young men will be young men, "'and the comfort to me is, George.' that living in the best society in England, as my means allow you to do. Thank you, sir, said George, making his point at once. One can't live with these great folks for nothing, and my purse, sir, look at it. He held up a little purse, which had been netted by Amelia, and contained the very last of Dobbin's pound notes. You shan't want, sir. Call on Mr. Chopper as you go through the city tomorrow. He'll have something for you. I don't grudge money when I know you're in good society, because I know that good society can never go wrong. I was a humbly born man, but you have had advantages. Make good use of them. Mix with the young nobility. And as for the pink bonnets, <laughs> here there was a knowing and not very pleasant leer. Why, boys will be boys. Only... "'There's one thing I order you to avoid, "'or I'll cut you off with a shilling by Jove, "'and that's gambling.' "'Oh, of course, sir,' said George. "'But to return to the other business about Amelia, "'why shouldn't you marry higher than a stockbroker's daughter, George?' "'It's a family business, sir. "'You and Mr. Setley made the match a hundred years ago. "'I don't deny it. "'But people's positions alter, sir.' I don't deny that Sedley made my fortune, or rather put me in the way of acquiring, by my own talents, my high position in the tallow trade and the city of London. But, George, I tell you in confidence, I don't like the looks of Mr. Sedley's affairs. 
My chief clerk, Mr. Chopper, does not like the looks of him, and he knows the exchange as well as any man in London. Unless I see Amelia's ten thousand down, you don't marry her. I'll have no lame duck's daughter in my family. Pass the wine, sir, or ring for coffee. Mr. Osborne spread out the evening paper, and George knew that the conversation was ended. He hurried upstairs to Amelia in the highest spirits. What was it that made him more attentive and tender than he had been for a long time? Was it that his generous heart warmed to her at the prospect of misfortune, or that the idea of losing the dear little prize made him value it more? She lived upon the recollections of that happy evening for many days afterwards, remembering his words and looks. It seemed to her no night ever passed so quickly at Mr. Osborne's house before. George took a tender leave of her the next morning, and then hurried off to the city, where he visited Mr. Chopper, his father's head clerk, and received a document which he exchanged at the bank for a pocketful of money. As George entered the bank, old John Sedley was leaving, looking very dismal. But his godson was too much elated to notice the worthy stockbroker's depression. As the swinging doors of Hulker, Bullock and Company closed upon Mr. Sedley, Mr. Quill, the cashier, winked at Mr. Driver, the clerk at the next desk. Mr. Driver winked back. No go, Mr. D whispered. Not at no price. Mr. Q said. Oh, Mr. George Osborne, sir, how will you take it? George eagerly crammed notes into his pockets, and later paid Dobbin fifty pounds at mess. That evening, Amelia wrote him the tenderest of long letters. Her heart was overflowing, but it still foreboded evil. What was the cause of Mr. Osborne's dark looks, she asked. Had any difference arisen between him and her papa? Her poor papa returned so melancholy from the city that all were alarmed about him at home. In all, there were four pages of loves and fears and hopes and forebodings. Poor dear little Emmy, how fond she is of me, George said as he read the letter. And, gad, what a headache that punch has given me. Poor little Emmy, indeed. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.